Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more podcasts and more information on your number one news and talk station, please visit 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Stand up for the law. Stand up for decency. Stand up for compassion. Stand up for respect. Stand up for your community. Stand up for your future. Stand up for South Africa. Lead SA. .co.za Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. It is 27 minutes to 10 o'clock and we open our lines immediately for you on 021-446-0567-011-8830702. Good morning, Chris. Hi, Reedy. Hi there. It's very nice to be with you. And uh, we start today's story. What's this? The world's oldest tackle together with evidence of deep sea fishing 40,000 years ago. What's that about? Yes, there's a paper published in the journal Science. It's literally just come out. It's from researchers at the Australian National University, Sue O'Connor and her colleagues. They've been investigating a couple of sites on East Timor where they've been doing some archaeological digs because they're interested in trying to trace the history of the people that would have migrated initially out of Africa, mm-hmm. then gone east across the south of Asia, and then gone to the southeastern tip of Eurasia, and then got across into Australia. And we know humans did that 60,000 years ago, but how they did it, there's very little information in the archaeological record, because they must have had boats, because there would have been about a 1,500-kilometre-wide archipelago that they would have had to get across of quite deep water. So Mm -hmm. there must have been boating, no evidence for it. Now what these people have found in their archaeological excavations is going back 42,000 years lots and lots of fish bones in these settler sites Mm. that these early pioneers would have left behind, including, and this is the critical thing, there are bones there from lots of what are known as pelagic species. These are fish like tuna, which live in the open sea. In other words, you could only exploit those fish if you had the facilities, like boats, that were pretty robust to get out there in order to start catching them. That was the first interesting point. The second interesting point is that when they go down in the timeline to about 24 to 16,000 years ago, then these really interesting specimens turn up. They are fish hooks. They are carved, beautiful bits of fish hook made from trochus shells. And these are the earliest examples ever of fish hooks being made. And if you then look at what sorts of bones turn up after they're invented, then you start to see more inshore-type fish that you would require a hook and line rather than a net to catch them. And so this is a beautiful example of not just what people were eating, how they were catching fish, but also indirect evidence for the fact that even 42,000 years ago, people had pretty good seamanship. Mm, very, very fascinating indeed. I have a, an email here from a listener whose son suffers from autism and uh, she's getting all sorts of conflicting messages about uh, how to handle it. Should she tackle it uh, using medication or diet? What, what do you say about that, Chris? Well, autism is a neurodevelopmental disorder. 
that means that it's not something that you develop because of the way that you're brought up. It's something that's hardwired into your brain. And scientists in recent years have spent a lot of time, effort and energy studying people who have autism and families who have autism. And they've identified a number of changes in the brain of how the brains of people with autism are connected up compared with people who don't have autism. They've also identified a number of genes which seem to be linked to the condition. So the answer is that what we're trying to discover now is the best way to bring up people who are either at risk of developing autism or already have the symptoms of it or autism-like disorders because autism isn't just a, a black and white situation. It's not like mm. you flick a switch and you have autism. It's actually probably part of a spectrum and we tend to call these Asperger's type or autism spectrum disorders. In other words, there are people who have different levels of function and they have different levels of symptoms and some are very severely affected, others are what are called very high-functioning and Knowing how to intervene in the right way so that people have the best outcome for them sure. is what scientists are trying to do right now. So there's no one right answer. And most of it will probably focus on helping people to overcome some of the inherent difficulty that comes with having the condition. So they learn tricks and techniques to enable them to overcome some of the shortcomings that is foisted upon them by having this particular problem. And because often people who have this may actually be very high functioning. I mean, there are, there are professors of physics at certain universities who actually have um, an autism spectrum disorder, which is probably what makes them so good at their jobs. Mm -hmm. Because they're so intelligent, some of these people, they can actually learn various strategies and tricks in order to make their life work much better for them and for those around them. All right, let's go straight to Judy in Centurion. Hi there. Tommy, um, the human body is not solid, and there's been a lot of talk about these neutrinos, etc., etc. When we physically touch somebody else, do we swap molecules? <laughs> you certainly swap bacteria, Judy. Oh, thanks, um, Chris. <laughs> and viruses, uh, and dead skin, and everything oh, no. else. Stop. But, but, <laughs> but the bottom line is, when two objects touch each other, an object is a, is a collection of atoms, in other words, a molecule. Um, and when you bring two objects close together, then the atoms on the molecules of object one are coming very close to the atoms which are part of the molecules of object two. And atoms consist of a nucleus which has got a bit of plus, protons, and some neutrons in it, and around that is a cloud of electrons. And when you bring two atoms together, what you're actually feeling, the force as two hard things push together or two objects come together, is, is not actually that there's something hard touching something else hard. It's actually the electrostatic repulsion, the electrical repellency of the minus electrons on one atom interacting with the minus electrons on the other. And you've got to push those two things together hard because effectively the closer they get together, the stronger the electrical repulsion. And so it is possible that when things become very, very close together, that, that you are going to see atoms detaching from one and going on to the other. That definitely happens in lots of chemical interactions. And when you physically touch people, it's, all, it, you know, it's a guaranteed that there will be an exchange of molecules from you to them. Mm. Um, but as I say, most of, the most of the cargo we carry is in the form of microorganisms and, and dead skin and other chemicals and rubbish and debris that we've picked up from the environment that you will transfer to a surface. Just look at a fingerprint. Um, you know, when people go to and commit a crime, they leave behind evidence of their misdeeds in the form of fingerprints. Yes. And those fingerprints are uh, a mixture of salts from the sweat that's on people's fingers, damp stuff, the water that they're secreting, and also fats and oils. And that glues all these particles onto the surface and leaves behind this nice impression of what that person's fingers look like. Nice question. Let's go to Corrine in Kilani. Hi. Hi. Um, I would 
like to know, please, at um, your at Cambridge University, you've been doing research and you've produced a drug for Gaucher's disease, a OGT918. For, they now call it Zavisca. I've been on that trial for like 11 years now. It was working great and uh, shrinking the spleen and the liver. And then all of a sudden now it's not working for the last, you know, couple of years or something. I'm still on the drug. Why does a drug like that stop functioning or working or doing its job? I think that the agent in question, I need to check this, so um, please take what I say with a pinch of salt. Mm -hmm. I think the work that's being referred to is work that's been pioneered by Professor Tim Cox, who is a metabolic medicine professor at Cambridge University, professor of medicine, and I know him quite well actually, and I think that the agent in question inhibits an enzyme um, or, or it actually makes up for a deficiency in an enzyme called glucocerebrosidase, which is what people who have Gaucher's disease have a problem with. This enzyme doesn't work properly, and so things build up in the cell that shouldn't be there, and those things can be toxic to cells, and so people get bone problems, and they, they can also get other organ problems, like you say. And what they decided to do is to come up with a molecule that could stop one of the other enzymes in that metabolic pathway from working, stopping the stuff which builds up from accumulating. I think that's how it works, but I might be wrong. And so as a result, th this means that you don't get this build-up of the bad thing. Um, why it should stop working, I don't know, um, and I think that's a question to to maybe for me to, to me to explore, and also perhaps you ask the person who is managing your care. Can you just tell me the name of the drug again, and I'll go and check. Well, it's now called Zavesca, Z A V E S C A. Right. Okay. It was originally if I can, if OGT nine one eight. Okay. I, th I think I know what that agent is. Yes. Um, if I can get uh, your email address or something, Corinne, then I will see what I can do and oh. I'll write to you. Wonderful. Oh, Thank lovely. You. Okay, Corinne, I'm going to put you on hold and Kate will take your, your, your details and let's see what we can do for you. Um, Chris, I've got an SMS here about, I don't know how to pronounce this, HARP technology. Is that how you say it? H-A-A-R-P. The Pentagon using this uh, this technology, somebody says, to destroy the world, but that's not the question. Uh, they're talking about HARP technology. Um, what is it, and can it create an earthquake? Um, I think I've got a vague sort of resonance, to take a seismic analogy, going on the back of my head that I know what this is, but I can't think of what the letters stand for. Mm. I'm going to have to take a rain check, because... I can't remember what this is. I think it's something to do with seismology. Yes. But let me let me have a, a think about that one, and uh, th and then I'll come back to it. Yeah, and there's something else about Tesla's earthquake machine. Okay, let's let's uh, do it another day then. Let's go to uh, Tanya in Mohale. Hi. Hi. Good morning, Reedy. Yes. Hi, Chris. I want Hi, to Tanya. know. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Do my koi can they actually recognise my voice? They come, they come swimming when I call them. They don't when my husband does. And also, they tend to react to female voice. I play the music, so they love Nora Jones. But for instance, Demi Sroustos and um, Julia Iglesias, uh, guys with deeper voices. Oh, they've got they, good taste hey, in music. So you're koi fish. Okay. I'm not kidding. They really, and some of them, they, uh, the two of them, the fish that I've had longest, I've, I've named them. And actually, I, I think that they recognize their names. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's a beautiful story, at least. <laughs> so the question is, 
the question is, you, you want to know if they can recognize your voice and can distinguish yes. between yours and your husband's because you said yes. to my producer that when your husband calls them, they don't react. No, they don't. Okay. Chris, can koi fish recognize um, I, I think it's. I think it's almost certain because there was a lady um, who was working. She's based at... Um, one of the American institutions, um, I wrote a book which I published in Australia last year called Stripping Down Science, and there's a chapter in there, and I happen to have a copy of Stripping Down Science on the desk here. So I'm just looking for this lady's name because she actually did this. Here we are, Ava Chase. She's from the Rowland Institute of Science in Massachusetts in the US, and she actually published this in the journal Animal Learning and Behaviour. What she did was to take a whole bunch of uh, carp, she had three carp, they were kois, they were called Beauty, Oro, O-R-O, and Pepe, P-E-P-I, and she found that she could train them to press a button in response to a food wow. food reward when she actually played them different types of music, okay? <laughs> she could get them to discriminate between Baroque and non-Baroque classical wow, music, so she that? played them Mozart, Beethoven, and Schubert, okay, and they could tell those sorts of numbers, and she also played them blues numbers, and ironically, uh, she also <laughs> chose... Je- Joe Lee Hooker as one of the uh, artists that she played them, which has obviously proved catchy with these particular fish I pointed out in this chapter. Um, but what, what she found is that the fish could indeed discriminate between these different genres of music and that their, their discrimination got better even when she screened out below frequencies of 200 hertz because fish have what's called a lateral line which is um, a, an organ that goes along the length of the side of the length of the fish and it signals vibration so that they can basically pick up movement in the water next to them and they make avoiding movements. And so if you screen out those sounds, they don't get too distracted and they seem to be able to pick up the different frequency combinations that you get in these different styles of music. I therefore think it's not at all unlikely that if the fish have effectively been trained like Pavlov's dogs, that when they hear your voice, they think, going to get fed. So they therefore swim over and uh, they respond to you, whereas your husband, who probably just teases them and doesn't feed them, uh, <laughs> is much less likely. They think, well, no, because the fish can discriminate between the different frequency spectra of the voices, because they are very sensitive to vibrations. Fish live in a world where water uh, is a very good medium for transmitting uh, vibration, and so they're very, very sensitized to it, and I suspect that that's exactly what they're doing. It's not at all unusual that fish can be trained quite well. They're very intelligent, actually. There's another guy at um, Macquarie University, or was it Macquarie, called Cullen Brown in Australia, and he had some, uh, effectively, what are tiddlers, just river-caught fish uh, that he got from Queensland, had them in a tank, and he could train them very quickly to look for signs of where there was a hole in a, a special net he was using. So he would drag a net down the tank, and there were signs on the net where the hole was, and the fish learned, after just a few trials, to find this hole and go straight through it without mm. any problem. And th- he then put them in a tank for about uh, a year or so and didn't subject them to the test, the apparatus, or... Uh, any other sort of reminders of this, retested them, and they all remembered from what they'd learned a year before. So fish have what you could say a carpaceous memory, and uh, they're extremely skilled at learning things, and they're also very sound sensitive. So I think all of the things you say are perfectly credible. Tanya, enjoy the music, and uh, yeah, what a cute story. Noel and Heiser, please stay on the line. I'll come back to you in a moment. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. Thank you for staying with us and sending your questions. Let's go straight to the lines and speak to Noel in Kenilworth. Hi. Hi, Reedy. How are you? Fine, fine. Thank you. What's on your mind? What do you want to ask? Really, I'd like to ask uh, the next naked scientist, Chris. Um, I'm a ceramicist, and I would like to know if methane gas can be used to fire fire ceramics. 
and you know how would one go about it that's just my question the line wasn't too clear there did you hear chris uh, yes, yeah, so okay. can methane be used by a ceramicist to fire things? Well, methane is natural gas, and it burns pretty well. It will burn releasing slightly less energy than if you burn, say, propane or butane, because they have more carbon atoms, and so you'll have to burn a bit more natural gas to get the same amount of oomph. But it will burn. It will burn hot if you burn enough of it, and no reason why you couldn't use it to fire your pots. Um, where, where you get the methane from, though, is a different matter. Um, it can arrive via a pipeline, or you can make it in a bioreactor. So there's no reason why it shouldn't work. Okay, good luck, Noel. Enjoy. Heiser in Murleta Park. How do I say your name again? That's uh, right, it's Heiser. Heiser. Okay, welcome. Yes. Welcome. Hi, hi, Chris. I've got a, uh, it's a different kind of a question, I guess, from the ordinary. Uh, out-of-body experiences, uh, astro-traveling. How do you feel about something like that? Possible or not? Okay. I'm just reaching out from in my astro-body now to, to find the answer. Uh, myself, I'm very sceptical, if I'm honest, I, so I don't believe it. Um, I think this is something that it's the making of great stories, but I don't think there's actually, in our present understanding of how science works, any evidence for this kind of thing. So I think it's a, it's a no from me, as they like to say on the X Factor. <laughs> uh, and Chris, I've got an email here about vitamins. Uh, somebody wants to know, do we really need vitamins and do they enhance our health? Popping pills. Well, well it depends who you ask, because if you were to go back to the time when the... English, well, the, the, the British Empire dominated most of the world and people were taking very long boat journeys to go from one part of the empire to another, then there was a very common condition, scurvy. And people did not know what this malady of sailors was that made their teeth drop out, it made their skin turn awful, they ended up with sores and open wounds. And when they got to land again, and after a few days, they immediately felt better and within a few weeks there was no sign they'd ever been unwell. And it actually took some quite bright people to work out that it was actually down to vitamin C and started taking lemons and limes on boats. And that's actually where the name limeys comes from, actually, um, because they pack a big vitamin C punch. And when they started putting fresh fruit on boats, all the problems went away. So if you're someone who is at a risk of a deficiency, then taking a vitamin is actually really good. And there are some populations in the world who subsist on very monotonous diets. Yes. As in, they, because of their geography where they live, they're forced to eat certain foods ad nauseam almost, and those foods are deficient in certain micronutrients, and this can cause various problems for those people. There are some cultures that end up quite vitamin A deficient, and they can have eye problems, and they can also have other issues because of losing out on the vitamin A they should get. If you reinforce their diet with some vitamin A, they're much healthier. People who eat a balanced diet, on the other hand, people who eat a good quality uh, set of foods, uh, micronutrients are all present every day, do you need vitamins? Well, probably not because you're not deficient and your body has evolved to extract these things which are present in tiny amounts in foods very efficiently. So you probably don't need to top them up if you just eat a good diet. And that means lots of fresh fruit and vegetables largely because that's where most of these things are. Mm. And I, I guess, I mean, I've had this conversation with a lot of people uh, before. I have very strong views on it. But the counter argument would be it's not so much that you are eating the healthy food. It's how the healthy food is packaged and processed and some of the nutrients are getting lost in the preparation of the food. So you need to boost that uh, with a vitamin intake. Yeah, but if you eat nice, natural, um, fresh ingredients and fresh salads and that kind of thing, then I don't think you can go far wrong because the problem with a vitamin pill is that it's packing a huge, great vitamin punch in one small pill 
and our body has not evolved to get its micronutrients in that way. We, that's what food is for. We've evolved to get these things in the physiological context in which they actually are present in nature. So you eat something, mm. it's got a small amount of this thing, a small amount of that thing, and it's therefore absorbed in, in the context of the food it's in, and that's how we've evolved to survive. So I think that's probably the, the safest way to say, well, I'm, I'm going to stay healthy, because not all vitamins are good. And it's, it's actually possible if you take too many vitamins to get quite unwell, and there was a study which was done by a guy called Bielikovic, he's um, from the University of Copenhagen, and they published this about three years ago. They did a big meta-analysis, in other words, you take lots of small studies that have been done, merge them all together into one big, powerful study, and they asked, if you take people who take vitamins and you compare their death rate with people who don't take vitamins, yeah. what's the difference? And there was a substantially elevated death rate in the people who were taking certain types of vitamins compared with the control individuals. People taking vitamin A and vitamin E supplements may have a, a, a death rate which was, say, up, up 100%. Um, compared with people who were controls. They also did a study on people who had um, lung cancer or were at risk of lung cancer because they smoked and this was done in Scandinavia and they took a group of people who were smokers put them on a placebo they took the other half and put them on vitamin A because they reasoned that vitamin A is an antioxidant and cancer arises because of oxidative damage to DNA wow. so if you give someone an antioxidant it should stop them getting cancer and as a result you should be able to see a reduction in cancer rates they stopped the trial because the number of cancers uh, in the vitamin A treatment group was double the number in the placebo group so you have to be pretty careful with these chemicals because in the, they're, they're good in small amounts. In big amounts, they can be very bad. It's like putting too much oil in your car engine. Small amount works really well. Big amount, it makes the engine run really badly and can damage it. Very interesting indeed. Thank you for answering that, Chris. And uh, we chat to you next week, don't we? I sure, I sure, sure hope so. Anyway, it's great fun. Thanks <laughs> bye for having bye, me. Bye-bye, bye-bye, Chris. Bye That's now. a naked scientist and it will be available for you as a podcast. And uh, thank you, guys. Your SMSs, your emails, incredible. Lovely. We love it. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.